Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Liverpool Echo and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. In a week where the North East was revealed as the country's child poverty hotspot, with one in two children growing up in poverty in some towns, what can we do to turn the situation around? Dan O'Donoghue speaks to Anna Turley, the former Labour MP who now chairs the North East Child Poverty Commission. You know, these are the issues that we should be talking about. These are This is the crisis for a country that's the sixth richest in the world. You know, we're not organising our economy and our society properly if this is the state that we're in when we have a, a social security system. So that, for me, should be the biggest priority and the biggest issue on the radar for anyone who wants to be Prime Minister of this country. But sadly, I'm not seeing any of this on the discussion table, um, certainly in the last few days. And that's frankly depressing. But first, let's talk about trains. In recent months, the political debate over railways in the North has centred on the big projects like HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, how much of them are going to be delivered, and whether that matches the big promises made by Boris Johnson's government. But while those two major schemes are still a long way from becoming reality, in the shorter term, there's a huge rail project in the north of England that's perhaps getting less attention than it should. Stretching across the north between York and Manchester via Leeds and Huddersfield, the 76-mile Trans-Pennine Railway serves 23 stations, crosses over and dips under 285 bridges and viaducts, passes through six miles of tunnels and crosses over 29 level crossings, A multi-billion pound upgrade, currently already underway, will, transport officials say, transform this line into a high-performing, reliable railway for passengers with greater punctuality, more trains and improved journey times. Sounds great. So, to find out what's happening with the Trans-Pennine route upgrade, let's speak to Rob McIntosh, Managing Director for Network Rail's Eastern Region, who's one of those leading the project's development. Rob, welcome. Hi Rob, how are you? Very good, very good. It's nice to have you on. Can you, after I've given that big introduction, can you take us through a bit more about the scheme and where we are with it at this moment in time? First thing to make out is we're on with building this scheme now. I first got involved with the scheme myself back in 2014 um, when it was just simply about electrifying the route. But since then, we've been working with, with various government departments to work out how we actually not only electrify, but we upgrade the route. And it's much, much needed, that investment. I live myself in North Yorkshire. I live not far off the route myself. And I'm acutely aware of not just the, frankly, disappointing service that, that our passengers get in terms of reliability, but also the congestion that we've got across that route for passengers and also freight users across that route. So much biomass product that goes to get some green energy to Drax comes across that route as well. So it's a long overdue investment upgrade. And where where are we now? Well, we, we're on with it. We're building it. We've done some stuff this week primarily because we've put the first electrification wires up between uh, York and Leeds. That's the first new electrification in Yorkshire for 25 years. So that's a big, big moment for us as an industry. It's a bit of railway that, that, that had to not be electrified in the 80s when we electrified the East Coast Main Line. So to be doing that now is actually quite iconic. And we're on that. And we're also on with the project at the other side of the route, just outside Manchester, Victoria, between Manchester, Victoria and Staley Bridge, 
where we're electrifying that section of line as well as remodeling it for better line speeds and providing more capacity for this future upgrade. So you mentioned electrification. Is the plan ultimately for the entire route between Manchester and York to be electrified? Absolutely. So so we're electrifying from a place called Colton Junction, just south of York, right through to Manchester, Victoria, as I've just described. The, the route will be electrified throughout uh, and all of the roads, that, that go, the, the, the rail tracks that cross over, all the capacity work we're doing, that will also be electrified. For people who are listening who perhaps don't understand the, the pros and cons of different upgrades that you can make to the railway lines, electrification, what, what, what benefits does that, does that bring to a railway line? Why, 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 why do that? The most pressing reason for doing electrification on the, the, the rail network right now is decarbonisation and the need to get to net zero by 2050. We all know the climate crisis the world is in and indeed we're all going to feel it a bit next week aren't we when when what feels like a desert-like conditions come across the UK so getting on with that electrification now is really really key but notwithstanding the environmental benefits of electrification electrification will allow trains to run quicker they accelerate and brake more quickly and electric trains are also more reliable so we can provide a better service we can also have more room on the trains for people in their bags and their luggage. So all around, we know from from decades of electrifying the railway that an electrified railway provides a better quality of services for service for passengers and freight users as well. And you mentioned capacity, and you hear that word used a lot, don't you, in discussions about the railways? And it's right, isn't it, that one of the big problems with the railway network in the north at the moment is that there is not enough railway track to cope with the number of services that operators and transport leaders want so if one service breaks down somewhere or if there's a slow running service or somewhere uh, somewhere else on the network other trains grind to a halt because there isn't enough space for them to all get round each other and so presumably what you're doing in increasing capacity is going to go some way towards solving that problem Absolutely. So what we're doing is we're we're putting in a project that's going to enable two fast trains per hour between York and and, and Manchester. And those fast trains will be in the order of 10 minutes quicker than the journey is today. But we're also going to facilitate two what we call semi-fast. So so two, two trains that just stop a little bit more, but still will be comparable with today's journey times. And then we'll have two slower trains, which will stop at more destinations to enable the passengers at those intermediate destinations to reach the cities. To do that, we've got to increase the capacity that's there today, which is simply just two tracks. There is only two tracks, really, between Leeds and Manchester. We we increase that capacity to four tracks in critical areas. Just a couple of weeks ago, we we successfully secured the transport and works order, which allows us to then acquire the land to double that track and increase that capacity through the key area. That will always that will also provide us with more capacity and frankly space to move more freight trains along the route as well. That all sounds very encouraging. But I guess realistically, a big project like this you know, more more railway capacity, more more lines, is going to come with a certain amount of disruption, isn't it? All, all big projects like this are quite disruptive. I mean, just how much disruption is there going to be for people who live in the local area for, for existing rail users? And where 
and how long how long for what what can people expect in that in that regard the the, the program of worse is going to go well into the mid 2030s before we finish this because you know i talked earlier about doubling the capacity between Huddersfield and Ravensthorpe and that key area, we're doubling the capacity of the track, which means we've got to build massive new structures to, to, to lift the railway line up above the land. And that's going to re- require lots of disruption to rail passengers and rail traffic. But actually, sad, you know, it's difficult. It'll be disruptive to local communities because whilst we're going to absolutely minimise what we need to do, there will be more traffic movements on the road to facilitate the construction. And indeed, that was one of the... One of the aspects of the transport works order that we really had to work through. We're, we're in the process now of trying to find the right balance between the amount of disruption that local passengers, communities and economies can sensibly tolerate versus pace of delivery. Obviously, you could deliver it really quickly if no one did anything across the Pennines for the next 10 years, but that's frankly not feasible or tenable for people. So we've got a number of options that are developing with stakeholders that will start in the next year to take to passenger groups, will start to take to community groups to say, look, here's the choices we need to make. We really want to engage people in that discussion so they feel part of the discussion and understand why we've had to close Huddersfield for a period of time or why we're closing Dewsbury for a period of time or why indeed we're going to close Leeds other than the normal times we do, which is at Christmas. Um, you know, it is a difficulty of this level of investment. We're talking multi-billion pound investments. Multi-billion pound investments require a lot of access and disruption to do. What we want to do is we take passengers and communities with us so they feel involved in the decision of how that access is used. So people will find out the specifics about what it's going to mean for them once you've sort of uh, put together those options and, and, and presented them. And that will be in the coming the coming months. Yeah, that will be the coming months and years. It will be an ongoing discussion, discussion, Rob. You know, there will be things that we need to do beyond 2030 that just aren't mature enough in their planning yet to have a sensible conversation with folk. But we know that in 2024, for example, we're going to have to start doing some disruption around Huddersfield. So we'll be taking this year the options around that to the local communities, the authorities, the businesses and, and the passengers. You mentioned um, when you're describing the kind of things that you're doing that uh, I think it was at Ravensthorpe that you'd be building, m- m- having the line high above, high above the ground. So h- how does that work? I'm trying to imagine what that would sort of look like in terms of uh, the structure of it. So, so in, in, in very, most people understand roads, uh, and and um, and what we're doing is where you've got a, a set of traffic lights at a crossroads, for example, we, we all know kind of get snarled up. You, roundabouts and trains generally wouldn't work, would they? So what we have to do is we have to separate those two flows of traffic. So in effect, we build a massive bridge or fly over or dive under in order to separate those flows of traffic because roundabouts and traffic lights just won't be able to cope with the volume that we've got. Um, and because trains are really big and really heavy and go at you know phenomenal speeds, and by the way, some of the line speed will be up to 110 miles an hour in that area, whereas at the moment it's down between 40 and 60. Uh, that requires these large structures, these large structures to be built. And that's unfortunately going to require, we've got to bring material in as well as utilise what we can more locally, but we've got to bring a lot of material in and take some material out. I see. So the high speed or, or the trains going at up to 100 miles an hour will be going over sort of o- o- over the roads effectively. 
to so as to uh, these are over so largely there'll be new bridges where they go in and around existing roads but this is just simply separating railway tracks rob right. so so if you take ravensthorpe where the line goes either up to bradford or we are bradley junction goes to bradford or you go down towards wakefield at the moment we've got the equivalent of a road junction with traffic lights we can't get the journey time improvements we want with that kind of system. So what we need to do is separate the two flows of traffic by building these flyovers. You talk about going, going to passenger groups and to, and to local areas to tell them about the disruption. But in terms of the, the benefits of this scheme, when are people going to notice some of the improvements that you've been setting out? So the first stage that people will start to see and feel improvements will be towards the end of 2024. Um, that's when we will have completed the electrification projects I talked about earlier. So when we would have completed electrification from Colton Junction down to Church Fenton on, on the east side of Leeds and on the west side as well, we'd have completed the electrification into Staley Bridge. What that then allows train operating colleagues to do is start to remap their services so that they can really make the most of that infrastructure so they can get greener trains, cleaner trains, more reliable trains operating on those routes that's the first one in 2024 but every time a bit of this infrastructure gets completed is we have an incremental improvement associated with that to allow the services to progress and in in addition to that while some of the rail disruption is taking place we've got what we call diversionary routes um, so, so if we're closing east of Huddersfield or west of Huddersfield, should I say, for example, we, 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 we go north around via Rochdale, as you know, in the line, and we've invested a lot in that line to make journey times better, more reliable, and increase the capacity so that when we have the rail disruption, we'll have as many meaningful utes and alternative, alternative routes for passengers and freight whilst we rebuild the railway in really tricky areas like Huddersfield. Now, obviously, the government set out its integrated rail plan last year and what that would mean for some of the high profile projects I was describing, like HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, both of which I think it's fair to say are not going to be as ambitious now as some northern leaders might have hoped. And for example, my I think my understanding is that Northern Powerhouse Rail, when it's eventually completed, will be a new high speed route out of Manchester as far east as Marsden in West Yorkshire, and then it will link up with the, the Transpennine route upgrade. So have you had to change your plans as a result of the government's new vision for our, our railways? And is, is there more resource being invested in your scheme as a result of uh, the integrated rail plan now being, now being published? So the integrated rail plan affects us in two ways, one of which is just common sense and the other is actually about, about good benefit for the scheme. The first is that what we needed to do is obviously make sure that work that we're doing on Trans-Pennine upgrade is still necessary when the integrated rail plan is delivered. And you just want that as a taxpayer to be done. You don't want to see things wasted. So we've done that exercise. We know where the interfaces are. And Trans-Pennine upgrade is absolutely complementary and indeed under, say, essential and underpins so much of both HS2 and also the Northern Powerhouse Rail and therefore the, the integrated rail plan. Um, the second aspect, actually, is that realising where we work in, in terms of geography in the projects we were doing on the route, there were aspects of Northern Powerhouse Rail that were mature enough to make sense for us to get on and deliver. So actually, the, the, the Transpennine upgrade scope now includes 
aspects of the integrated rail plan between Huddersfield and Marsden. We're assessing what options we do around Dewsbury to meet the Northern Powerhouse Rail requirements. And we're also looking at east of Leeds and to what extent we double the number of tracks east of Leeds. So we're looking at those projects and defining exactly what we're going to deliver as part of the TransPennine upgrade, because it know it makes sense for us to do it whilst we're in there doing this other work. The TransPennine route upgrade is, I think it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest thing that Network Rail has ever tried to do. What, what's the implication going to be for jobs? Are you hoping, to, are you hoping it, it, it could create some you know, local work for people locally in the, in the affected communities? I'm, I'm determined. I'm, I'm, it's more than what we can do. I'm determined that we create as many local jobs and skills as we can with this work. I, I, I think that that it would be wrong not to do that, but also I think it's necessary because of what we're seeing in the labour market at the moment, with inflation going on, with with wage inflation going on, with skills being drawn, to, to, you know, towards dare I say the glamorous projects like HS2. That, that we grow our own labour in the north and we start to create a bit of a legacy in that way. And of course, that would then leave us with a skill base that can deliver the integrated rail plan and deliver Northern Powers Rail and deliver the northern parts of HS2 and create you know, a whole cadre, a generation of, of construction workers and railway folk that will carry on and had a job for life in the industry as I have. And do you think that the skills are there at the moment, like the workforce has the skills that it is required to do that work or would extra training be required to get them where they need to be for a project of this of this scale no we we know we know now rob there's not the skills either locally or nationally as it happens and and so we're, we're actively um looking at our strategies on how we grow that skills engaging with schools working with colleges universities working with other means of employment um and just making sure that we grow that and, and really leverage the multi-billion pound of investment. So so it's not just about making railway journeys better and the socio-economic things that railway and the, the purpose that railways serve is that we actually give people really good jobs off the back of this and some skills that they can take forward to the rest of their career. Rob McIntosh of Network Rail, thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. This week, the End Child Poverty Coalition published figures which laid bare the extent of child poverty in the North. In Manchester, around 40% of children are now living in poverty, and Bradford isn't far behind. The region which came out worst was the North East, with Newcastle and Gateshead seeing the biggest poverty rises in the UK, while Middlesbrough's child poverty rate stands at 50%. With me now to discuss all this and more is North East Child Poverty Commission Chair and former Redcar MP, Anna Turley. Anna, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. These figures are, are truly shocking. Um, I just wonder if you could talk us through the research and, and perhaps some of the key findings. Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, the this has uh, been pulled together by the End Child Poverty Coalition, which brings together around 70 groups around the country. And it's done this research with uh, Loughborough University. And um, there's always a lot of discussion and debate about how you categorise child poverty. Um, There are two sort of main ways. One is absolute poverty. um, But we find generally that obviously tends to rise as living standards and and so on rise. Um, And the other is uh, relative poverty. And we think that's probably the most important indicator for how things are, because obviously it reflects how unequal we are as a society, which is really 
obviously the most sort of telling point about poverty, um, who's falling behind, who's getting left behind, and whose childhood is being damaged by the consequences of poverty. And so this research uses the uh, the relative poverty um, sort of uh, analysis. And um, and yeah, the findings w- were really shocking. Um, the, the substantial increases in particular areas since 2015 were probably the most telling thing. And obviously, I'm I'm here as the as the chair from from the Northeast Child Poverty Commission. And for us, you know, 15 in 2015, we were sort of around or below um, the national average in terms of where all our local authorities were. And now we've just absolutely rocketed, and we've overtaken London at the top of the uh, at the top of the table. And and that's shocking. That's you know 38 percent of children across the northeast on average in poverty and to think about what that means in terms of actual you know real life that's imagine a class of 30 kids that's 11 kids there that are nationally classed as being in poverty and um you know it's shocking it's horrifying but it's probably not massively surprising to people across the northeast who are working in public services and the voluntary sector and so on because we've been seeing this and feeling this for some time now why particularly is the northeast fair and fair and badly in these figures i mean and do you think it'll get worse as, as, as time goes on yeah i think it is going to get worse um to take the second point first um these statistics were for the sort of 2021 uh year and so i think you know post covid and with the rising cost of living that we've seen you know in the last six months um the trajectory is really bad and that looks set to continue as we know you know inflation rising cost of living nothing we're not seeing anything um being discussed or debated that's actually going to help tackle this trajectory and we know that come the autumn when people start to turn their heating bills on um, this is only going to get worse and I think we're heading for for a winter of, of, of crisis and in terms of why this region I think, I mean, there are obviously some historic sort of legacy issues. We do have the highest rate of unemployment in the Northeast, and that's something that's been, you know, frustrating. People have been trying to tackle for some time, but that legacy of a kind of post-industrial decline, um, there's been huge amounts of investment under various governments to try and remedy that. But um, that is a longstanding legacy that we face, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, you know, no amount of northern powerhouses or levelling up slogans of the last few years have done that. As you can see, it's got worse. I think the second issue is actually in-work poverty. Um, and that's something that easily gets lost in a lot of the discussion and the debate, um, particularly in the leadership uh, discussions that we're, we're seeing at the moment from, from the Conservative Party. These are not, you know, your scrounders, your shirkers. People are working hard. They're trying to get all the hours they can. They're working several jobs, many of them. But the rates of in-work in pay are the lowest in the country in the northeast. So people who are in work are, are on those lowest rates of pay. So that's probably the second reason. And the third reason is that we do have a large number of people in this region who are on uh, social security and that has just completely failed to keep uh, pace with inflation over the last sort of seven years or so but also we've seen a raft of welfare reform changes that have impacted on people here so you know I'm thinking one of the biggest um, drivers of child poverty in this region is the two-child limit um, which is not you know supposed to be to sort of stop so-called feckless people having too many children but all we've seen is that it's not actually changed any behavior it's not reduced the size of of, family sizes it's actually just driven larger families into poverty you know most people don't think or plan uh, or know what their what their um, financial situation is going to be in five years time when they're having children and so it's just it's one of those policies that just you know has been pretty devastating really for a lot of families and um, has a has a big impact plus the benefit cap as well Um, and we know you know issues like the bedroom tax and others 
others have impacted here. So so those welfare reform changes, I'd say, are sort of the third driver in this region. Um, we have the highest number of children being taken into care. You know, we are looking at some serious levels of poverty and deprivation here. And, um, you know, we just need we need government to, to wake up and we need to recognise that levelling up, as I say, has got to be more than a slogan and it's got to address the structural uh, and geographical inequality that we, we have in this country. When this study was published earlier this week, the government's response uh, was to cite the cost of living payments that I think are due to start in the next couple of weeks. And Middlesbrough's Alth MP Simon Clark, who obviously was formerly very senior in the Treasury, kind of argued the only way to solve this issue is through growth and jobs. I mean, you've, you've just kind of uh, given her a bit of an assessment of, of the government's approach so far. But what would you like to see the government doing to tackle some of these these big issues? As you say, you know, stretching back uh, many years of, of governments of different colour, have uh, not been able to resolve these issues. How would you like to, to see ministers tackle this? Well, I think um, we'd all agree that more jobs is probably one of the biggest uh, ways that we can address this, more jobs and better in-work pay. Um, so that's absolutely right. But I think what, what we're failing to see is, you know, we can all analyse the causes of this. And, you know, if you if you have a chance to read the government's levelling up white paper, the first half is actually a very good analysis of the problems and the structural inequality in this country. What it falls desperately short on is any kind of solutions and you know I think that for the government to say well we're, we're bringing in this that and the other payment over the next few months well that's just not going to touch the site and, and if you look at the trend as I said this is going back you know particularly since 2015 this the trajectory has been incredibly sharp so uh, but I would say you know we, we shouldn't despair because there are things that governments can do um, for example the northeast actually experienced the biggest drop in child poverty between the late 1990s and early 2000s when the government the previous government the Labour government had a commitment to ending child poverty by 2020. And so if you have a sort of commitment and the prioritisation and the targeting of this, you can actually make a difference. And for example, you know, a lot of people have pointed to a slight spike. If you uh, if you see the figures that were out this week, nationally, um, there was a slight uh, decrease in, in child poverty um, during the first year of the, the pandemic. And that was as a consequence of the £20 universal credit uplift, which was subsequently removed. So you can see that there are tools and levers that you can apply, firstly, to say, try and redress some of the challenges in the social security system, and then to, to focus on on jobs and investment. And that is, of course, a long term challenge. But I think my frustration in looking at the sort of levelling up agenda and what many of the conservatives in this region and others would, would point to as their success stories uh, of, of investment are not, as I said, dealing with the structural issues. So, you know, huge investment, say, in the airport here, to what extent that's actually going to have a, a, a wider ripple out effect to tackle the kind of long standing structural issues in the in the economy, it remains to be seen. And, you know, of course, infrastructure is important, um, particularly around transport and so on, helping people to, to get to work and create create connectivity. But every time I see kind of hard hats and shovels going in ground, I'm reminded that actually, you know, we've got a whole army of social care workers who are just about on the minimum wage, not really on a living wage. Um, you've got a huge range of people who are struggling with childcare costs. And again, that could be one of the biggest levers that you could use to, to help um, tackle child poverty. There are lots of uh, areas that the government could be intervening if it really understood the sort of the wider sort of socioeconomic and, and social challenges that we face, rather than just kind of big ticket kind of uh, glamorous infrastructure projects which might get the headlines but are not going to do have a sort of ripple out effect and lift the whole sort of tide as it were. 
I think, as you alluded to, obviously, we're right in the middle of a Tory leadership election. Um, do you think any of the candidates have any of these issues on the radar at the moment? Uh, it's been really depressing, to be honest. I mean, just even going back further than that, uh, the levelling up white paper didn't even mention child poverty. I think there's been a will, and no one, none of the regional MPs here, um, certainly Conservatives, uh, mentioned the child poverty statistics this week, which you'd think if your area has suddenly gone up to over 50%, of children and living in poverty, this would be something that you would be kind of trying to shout from the rooftops and trying to tackle as your biggest issue. Um, but we didn't see that. We didn't see that coming from the mayor of Middlesbrough either. Um, so it's kind of frustrating. I understand there's a, there's a, I think there's a sort of electoral pull to talk the area up. And I understand that, you know, we, we, we want, this area to be the best it can be. We believe this is a great place to bring up children. And we believe every child here deserves to have the best future and to have every opportunity that they deserve and to have all those barriers removed that are holding them back compared with other children around the country who want them to achieve their dreams. But this, at the moment, this just isn't happening. And until we face up to the reality of that, that's not talking the area down. That's wanting the best for the area. That's saying our region and our children deserve better than this. So I think no amount of boosterism and talking Teesside up or talking the Northeast up or, you know, being kind of positive, it, it, we've got to actually just recognise that there's an issue here and be honest about it. And I'm certainly not seeing that from the leadership contest. I've been watching the coverage this morning and been pretty depressed, to be honest, about conversations around trans rights and about the Rwanda policy and dinghies in the in the channel. I understand that these are issues that they want to address and, you know, of course, are important to some, um, perhaps to a particular target audience. But the idea that we've got children growing up unable to put food, you know, for parents unable to put food on the table, children starting school often years behind their peers in terms of, you know, their 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 life chances and their readiness for school. We've got, we've had families come to us asking, is it okay to just put your fridge and your freezer on for an hour a day because they can't afford to keep it on for the whole day? And we're having to explain to them that, you know, that just, that, that's not healthy or make yourself ill. We've got, you know, we talked to sports centres where families are coming in to have showers because they don't want to have a shower at home because of the costs. I mean, this is a, a crisis that we're facing. Families are desperate. Food banks are overwhelmed. Um, they're seeing a reduction in the donations that they're getting. Baby banks, you know, you've got people with, with young children, young babies who are desperate for the help and support from baby banks. And that demand is just going up. So, you know, these are the issues that we should be talking about. These are this is the crisis for a country that's the sixth richest in the world. You know, we're not organising our economy and our society properly if this is the state that we're in when we have a, a social security system. So that, for me, should be the biggest priority and the biggest issue on the radar for anyone who wants to be prime minister of this country. But sadly, I'm not seeing any of this on the discussion table. Um, certainly, in the last few days, and that's frankly depressing. Well, I don't know if you caught any of uh, Liz Truss's or Penny Morden's uh, speech or campaign launches. I mean, Liz Truss spoke about low tax zones as a solution to, or as a, as a help to level up. And Penny Morden talked about MPs getting pots of capital funding to spend on local projects. Um, you know, of course, this call all comes against the backdrop of the Leveling Up agenda, where we've seen, I've lost count of how many funds have been announced over the last year or so. I, th I think I saw some research from a think tank which said that since 2015, there's, there's been around 150 of these uh, central government funds that councils can kind of bid into. I just wonder, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting parallel, really, because obviously there's this spike since 2015. And obviously there's been a spike since 2015 and all these, these funds being allocated. 
I just wonder, you know, the, the government's main push over the last couple of years has been to lower uh, grants, central government grants to local councils, forcing them to rely more on business rates and then obviously bid into to pots for, for cash. And we've seen numerous examples of, of really deprived areas being um, looked over for funds. How much is this a bit of a mess? I mean, when it comes to trying to tackle this issue, you know, because, you know, previously you would have local leaders deciding how cash was spent. Now it seems to be it's a bit of a beauty parade down in Westminster where you need to get some of this cash. Exactly. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I think mess is the best way to describe it. It's it's incredible that you anyone could think decades, well, 12 years of austerity, which has seen local authorities lose millions, usually around a third of their budgets. And the most deprived areas have seen the biggest cuts. That's absolutely shameful. And then and you wonder then why there are no youth services. You wonder then why local authorities are, are keeling over. And you wonder why, you know, potholes aren't being filled and town centres are looking scruffy and they've had to cut back on street cl- cleansing and all of these services. And then the frustration is that the government will turn around and say, oh, but I tell you what, we understand this. We hear you. We're going to give you a pot of money to deal with this. Well, A, that's, you know, that's just ridiculous. It's massive centralisation. And B, you've then got local authorities having to compete against each other for this funding. And I just I find it absolutely bizarre in, in a modern democracy where we have a local government system that some civil servant in Whitehall is sitting there looking at reams of paper, deciding whether, you know, I take my area red car or Eston can have a swimming pool or a new cinema. I mean, that's absolutely bonkers, you know, as part of this sort of town centre funding and so on, or giving money for, you know, a regeneration of a, of a town centre square. I mean, that is just balmy. There's no way that a civil servant in Whitehall should be making those decisions. Local authorities should be having not just the budgets, but the ability to raise funds and more freedoms and flexibilities in the long term to do that and be able to give more trust to manage their own budgets. When I speak to... Um, people in local authorities, particularly around the child poverty agenda, their frustration is, well, we're given, say, this COVID relief fund or XYZ fund to help people, but it's short term, it's only six months, we don't know if we're going to get it again. And then the time it takes to work out how you're going to make these payments to people and how you're going to administer this, you know, the the delay is there. But And that's because we've seen proper pots of money like the social fund and others cut over the years where local authorities were able to flexibly adapt to people's needs and be responsive and be that safety net for when people fell through the system that's all been taken away and suddenly they're relying on government to decide what's the crisis what's the pot of money what are the very specific limits that this should be spent on how should it be spent and i just think it's crazy in in a in a modern democracy to have this kind of centralized control which just leads to a lack inability for councils to plan and respond to to their local needs i suppose as well we've also seen you know how volatile central government is over the last couple of years with various resignations and changes to government and elections you know, I mean, this morning, I think the levelling up and regeneration bill is going through committee at the moment. And there was a big row this morning over the fact that a lot of uh, planning decisions through this new national planning framework has to go to the Secretary of State for, for decision. And obviously, we've just had Michael Gove resign and, you know, who knows how long Greg Clark will be in post for. Um, so I suppose it's kind of tying one hand behind the back of local authorities to make some of these decisions if it's constantly waiting on a government which may or may not be uh, paying close attention at the time. Completely, completely. I mean, there's not just the turnover and the churn that, you, that you've expressed, but there's also, you know, paralysis. We've had this government pretty much been in paralysis since, well, December. And then obviously prior to that, we've had COVID. You know, it, it's inevitable you're going to have big international crises, you know, Ukraine, etc., which is going to take the government prioritisation. But I think, again, when you've hollowed out the civil service, and of course, you know, they're all talking about tax cuts and hollowing out the civil service even more, then you're going 
going to just end up with a system that's going to keel over, that's going to break, that can't literally manage this the, the weight of demand on it compared to its ability to do that. And, and actually, that, and that's before we even get to the point about politics. And, you know, what I found increasingly depressing over the last few years is the politicisation of these decisions. And we all kind of, you know, I remember sitting in debates on the local government um, sort of uh, bu- budgets um, sort of process when I back when I was an MP. And we could see how things were going. It was moving away from uses of, the use of deprivation to decide who um, got funding and we knew that that was kind of getting increasingly politicized pork barreled and coming back to the point about things like the town center fund and these specific pots of money it's quite clear to me I know exactly you know you could almost predict which areas are going to get those pots of money according to what color rosette their MP is wearing when their local elections are and our system just never our system used to work on a kind of basis of trust that you just didn't do this because it wasn't acceptable but the politicization of the of the way that funding is allocated in the, in the country now is really shocking and depressing and as i said it's been it's been set up so that MPs who may have won their seats for the first time can write in their leaflets about look how much we've delivered when 20 years of the other party has done nothing for you. We've put these lovely uh, flower pots in the town centre square and, and look what we've done. We're talking the area up when actually, again, what's needed is that proper structural reform for the economic inequalities and that we have in this country by geography. Um, they're, they're the things, the big questions that just aren't being addressed, but little pots of money to make people feel better and for MPs and or politicians and councillors to put on their leaflets is a very cynical way to do things, in my view. And um, finally, you've obviously seen the polls, which has given Labour a significant lead, and we're maybe looking at an election perhaps next year or in 2024. I just wonder, do you think you'll have a crack at turning red car back red? Well, I don't know whether it's me or anyone else. I definitely want to see Reka go red. I think um, I understand the reasons that people uh, voted in 2019, you know, Brexit, Corbyn being the kind of biggest drivers of that. And, um, you know, I think we'd lost Reka before to the Liberal Democrats in 2020. And I, and, I, and I think that's important that people feel that their vote matters. They feel that they can keep the MP and the government of the day and the parties of the day on their toes. So, you know, I think that's absolutely you know fair enough. But I hope now that people will recognise the true issues that really matter. And as I say, child poverty for me being one of them. You know, I want children in Redcar to have the best chance in life, the best start in life, and to have the same chances that kids from all over the country have. And we're not there at the moment, and it's getting worse. And and that's because of political changes. So I feel very strongly about that. As for me personally, I, I don't know. We'll see. It's uh, plenty of time yet. But um, but I'm here. You know, still in Redcar, still trying to, uh, to to do my best. So we'll see. listening to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and dan o'donoghue and it's produced by daniel j mclaughlin if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the northern agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including apple and spotify Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.